0: Good morning. <clears throat> Welcome to Emmanuel Bible Church. We are thankful that you are here to join with us in our time of worship on this Lord's Day. Um, we are starting um, our new section in terms of our study in the book of Ephesians. And so um, this morning is meant to be an introduction to the book so that uh, we might uh, kind of have an idea of what we should expect. So in terms of the verses we'll look at we're only looking at the first 3 verses by way of introduction greeting etc but I also want to set us up for understanding what is unique to the epistle to the Ephesians now when I say epistle uh, that just means letter and that's what it is uh, it's a it's a letter written by the apostle Paul to a group of believers and it's meant to be it had been written Right in a manner that is meant to be circulated broadly, and uh, um, but in particular to those believers, I think in uh, in Ephesus. So um, let me just begin with the word of prayer, and then we will look to the book of Ephesus and the first three verses, Paul's opening greetings, and uh, and get a sense of where the Lord might take us over the next. Uh, I don't know. It might take us a year, possibly. All right. We'll see. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you that as we gather that we are privileged, Lord, not just to hear the word of God, but to sing its truthfulness in song, to lift up prayers together as a congregation and as a community, as a church body and as a family, to say our amens to the things that we desire to see done in terms of your graciousness in the salvation of people, to say our amens with thankfulness to the things that we have already seen in terms of your faithful dealings with individuals like us who don't deserve your grace and your kindness. We thank you that we might join in together uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ and share our burdens, share our victories, delight in the fact that even if there's nothing to share today, that we are members of one another. So as we look to this particular book, may you enliven us to understand these exact truths even more deeply, that in Christ we have found something that the entire world is looking for, forgiveness of sins, a righteous declaration, that we might be right before our living God, and that we might commune, have fellowship and relationship with him and Jesus Christ, his son, through the power of his spirit and that we might be connected one to another and express the very things that have rescued us in ways that are appropriate to brothers and sisters in Christ, to the death and dying without Christ, that we might represent Christ in anything and everything that we do. Would you teach us these truths over the months that we get to study this wonderful book? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen So the book of Ephesians, and let me say right off the bat, let me start us off. maybe it's not a good place to start off, but there is an immediate textual problem, right? There is an immediate textual problem, because um, as, um, as our uh, scriptures say, this is meant to be to the saints, this is the second part of verse one, who are in Ephesus. Well, many of the, the older manuscripts, right, emit that phrase in Ephesus. So it was thought by some that, okay, maybe then it's a circular letter, meaning it's meant to be circulated. And there is some internal evidence to that, meaning that you notice that unlike other books, there isn't a lot of mention of individuals. There's a mention of a couple of individuals towards the end, but there isn't a particular problem. Like, you know, the first letter to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, uh, Galatians, right? Like, like most of Paul's uh, letters, um, just reading it, you can begin to identify the particulars of what is ailing a particular body of believers. That's not, that's not that evident. It's more general, more theologically broad, more, more um, uh, applicable to a wider audience, this particular letter. And so you have these kind of interesting things, right? But what is of further of interest, if you, if you want to follow along that line, is even though some and many manuscripts, I say some, but it's really many manuscripts, omit the phrase in Ephesus, strangely enough, nothing is inserted. Like F.F. F. Bruce, great Bible scholar, New Testament scholar of a past generation, he has the very, and, it, and again, it's a very unique theory, maybe just to him, and I, I, don't, I don't buy it. I'm just kind of letting you know, but his theory is that it is omitted on purpose, and people, whoever's delivering the letter, is supposed to write in Laodicea, right, or some other place, right, Rome, probably not Rome, Paul's writing from Rome, right, but wherever else it's supposed to be taken that they're supposed to write in the city, well, it's an interesting concept to make it as that circular of a letter that it's to be applied to whatever region. But it's highly unlikely because there is no manuscript out of the hundreds of manuscripts, right, that have any other city. It is either in Ephesus or it's nothing. And the nothing makes for this very awkward kind of translation of, of you know, um, this is a letter, right, um, to the saints, who are in and are faithful in Christ Jesus, right? Like, it's just kind of this this interesting dilemma. And where where, where does that take us? I think simply to this. I believe that it's probably written to the Ephesian church, right? Or to a number of churches in the Ephesus area. Um, But beyond that, it was meant to be widely circulated. But I think all the New Testament letters are understood by their inspiration to be widely circulated. And I think that's really what we have here in Ephesus, a letter um, that is written with the Ephesian churches in mind, but is broad enough that is meant to be helpful for all Christians in every church in all generations. And that's why it can be so helpful to us. The letter to the Ephesians is written in uh, about AD 60 to 61. Um, why that is significant is because it is one of the prison epistles, um, Paul was in prison. Well, he was in prison a few times, right? But this is probably written during his uh, first Roman imprisonment. And the prison epistles are comprised of Ephesians, this book, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. You say, well, how do we know they're prison epistles? Because he literally says, I'm in chains in those letters. Like, he is, he is in jail. But even as he describes what it's like for him to be in jail, that he's receiving friends, that he's interacting with individuals, that people come and go, that he gets to talk to these individuals, all of that kind of stuff. It suggests that it's some form of house arrest, that he has some freedom to walk about, right? That even if he is under house arrest and they're kind of watching him, people could visit, they could pray together, they could go through the scriptures together. There's a lot of ministry. He's writing all these letters. There's a lot of stuff happening, And that is very contrasting, very different from his description of being in prison in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is Paul's final epistle. um, And it's the last epistle before he's martyred. And there he talks about being left, right? Left without any friends. He has been abandoned. He is cold. He could use a cloak. And he asked Timothy to bring the parchments because everyone's left him. He anticipates his death. He says he's already being poured out as a drink offering. He uses a similar metaphor in, uh, in Philippians, but it's much more optimistic. And it sounds like even if, and towards the end of that, it sounds like, you know, the Lord's going to deliver me because there's more ministry to be done. But by the time we get to 2 Timothy, he is rotting in the Mamertine prisons in Rome. And he will soon be martyred. So that's why we distinguish between the first imprisonment, the second imprisonment. But what we should take from the idea that is part of the prison epistles is some of the similarities. If he's writing these letters Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians and mean around the same time, then you think about, like just how is he thinking in those two, three years? right? What is he doing? What are some of the things that are common? And then if you take Colossians and Ephesians and you compare them, there are things in Ephesians and Colossians that are so similar, right? Same kind of issues that are, or same kind of things that are addressed, similar theological concepts, et cetera. So they they run parallel, and you can tell he's written them at a similar time in his life. But where Colossians and Ephesians, right, where they are parallel, and then when they diverge, I think is of particular interest. I love the book of Colossians. Um, if you have been a member for a while, I think we went to Colossians maybe about a decade ago. Does that sound right? Maybe longer? Some of you guys aren't even that old? I don't know. But, but you know, Colossians was a fantastic book. And one of the things I loved about the letter to the, uh, uh, to the, uh, the Christians in, in Colossae is that it's it's all about the supremacy of Christ. There's such a rich Christology. He is on every page and every thought, and the exaltation of Christ is throughout that book. That's, that's Colossians. Well, Ephesians is similar, but in a different way. It is not so much about his supremacy... Right, the, the, the fact that all things are for him and to him and must be you know, given over to him, it's, it's more about his immeasurable wealth and grace towards us. So whereas Colossians is emphasizing who he is in terms of his highness, in terms of exaltedness, Ephesians seems to be emphasizing more of, of Christ and all he has done for us so that we receive the wealth of, of his immeasurable grace. It's both an exaltation of Christ, but one is his being, his person, his value, his worth, and the other is all of his value and worth that he has granted to us. And that's what I love about the book of Ephesians. If you want to divide the book into its component parts, there's really only two major, I think, divisions. And it's just the first three chapters. In the last three chapters, it literally divides very cleanly. Uh, Chapters 1 through 3, as we see there, we can can call that, it's our position in Christ. In other words, who are we in Christ? What is our position before the Lord that that Christ has won for us? That's chapters 1 through 3. It is the more doctrinal or theological part of the letter. And there's a reason for that. Paul is going to build for us a theological basis of how we should live. He is not immediately addressing how you should live. He is saying this is who we are in Christ. This is what Christ has accomplished in us. This is what the grace of God means for us. This is what you were, and this is what you are in Christ. And as a result of that, the second half of the book is about our practice. It's about our duty. See, I know some of you young kids want to laugh at the word duty, right? But it is. It's about our responsibility. But see, be careful because I think there's a tendency in some of us to emphasize practice, duty, responsibility in such a way that that's what we just naturally gravitate towards. But you go there because of who you are, not because of what you are trying to be. You go there because of what Christ has done and the wealth of his grace towards you, and that leads you to desire to live differently. It's a, it's a love-motivated responsibility and practice that flows out of the theological doctrinal truth of the spiritual wealth that we have in Christ. So it divides very cleanly. In fact, can I just give you a little excerpt of, of how cleanly It does divide, right? If we take the first three chapters and we're saying it's about our theology, about our position in Christ, listen to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, which you're probably familiar with. And I'll mention a couple more times as we're doing this introduction to Ephesians. But Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it's on the screen there. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now emphasize this, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so you see, like, right in the middle of the first three chapters is this theological summary of saying this is how we are what we are. Not because we have done it, not because we have earned it, not because of anything that we might say, dude, at least I'm better than you. I chose Christ. At least I'm better than you. You know, I, I'm, I'm less sinful. The whole point is there's no basis of boasting. Grace is the basis by which you have been saved. Yes, through faith, you have placed your faith, but that's it. The idea of saying through faith is not that you have somehow built up some power points of faith, but the idea is that that's all you could do is to believe. You've offered nothing. You have brought nothing. All your salvation is through him. And that salvation, according to Ephesians 2.10, that verse 10 there, makes us his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, so all of that is leading to, okay, so this is what we do. This is what Christians look like. This is how Christians act. Because we are Christians. Because we are in Christ. That's the emphasis. In the second part, if we think about our practice, right, our duty, then the walking out, the living of those that are transformed by the gospel of of Jesus Christ, that is what is addressed in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And in the opening verses of that division, right, in chapter 4, which would be the, the section on practice, this is how the first three verses read. Ephesians 4, 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. How do we define what a Christian is? Chapters 1 through 3. How do we define what a Christian looks like? How do, we, how do we see their life? And here it is, the first three verses of chapter 4, and then the particulars that will come at the rest of the chapters. But I love that, right? Look at verses 1 through 3 again. Because I think there's a wealth there that is the challenge for us to ask ourselves, man, is this the way that I am characterized in my, in my dealings with other people, with other individuals, with this world, with this life? I, therefore, Paul says, a prisoner for the Lord. So, so right, that's the first part. The first part is I've been saved by grace. He is my Lord. I deserve none of it. He did all of it. And as a result of that, I serve him. I have one master not myself, I have one Lord and Master who has saved my soul. I'm a prisoner for the Lord, he says, so then I will urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of that calling. Could we ever be worthy of salvation? The answer is no, but we are to walk in a manner that's commensurate, that is appropriate to how high and valuable the salvation by grace alone through faith actually is. If this is real, this is miraculous, new life in Christ, transformed, given what we could never possibly earn or deserve, and all freely because that's how God expresses his love to us in Christ. Then he's saying, don't act like petty human beings. Don't just live like your neighbors. Don't be like everyone. You ought to be different. You ought to be different. You ought to walk in a manner that is worthy of a calling to which you have been called, to which you are not worthy. And it gives us the description, verses 2 and 3 of how, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You get a sense that, right, that part of what it looks like to live out our gospel reality, our gospel transformation is to live like our Savior, with gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So how odd it is when Christians are bickering, fighting, petty over nonsense. And some things are not nonsense. Some things that, as we talk about, are enough for us to say that we can't join that other church, but are they believers and they are believers? Give them grace. right? Are these unbelievers? Right? who are sinning and defiling the name of Jesus Christ, well, does that shock you? Were you not the same before you came to Christ? There is a manner of living that's commensurate with gospel salvation. And the deeper our understanding of the doctrine, the greater our devotion, I think the more gracious the outlook of our character. That's what Ephesians does for us. It takes us from its truthfulness and guides us. Into its application for how we live with one another and in this dying world. That's how we might introduce this book. But let's take a look at the first couple of verses. Then, all right, um, let's take a look at the opening lines of the letter um, to the Ephesians. You know, I, I, whenever we do a, an epistle, especially the Pauline epistles, I usually have one message just for the opening greetings because it's kind of odd. Like it's hard to fit that in with everything else. You know what I mean? Because it's kind of like, hey, I'm Paul, writing to you guys, good to hear from you, right? Like, it's that stuff, and you're just kind of, okay, let's get to the meat. But don't gloss it over, because there's reasons why I think Paul chooses, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to address things in the way that he does. And in verse 1, I'd like to emphasize that that Paul and the, the, the saints in Ephesus, Paul intentionally, and I think under inspiration, Um, identifies them in Christ Jesus. It is about their identity. It's about their identity. When you think about identity, right, we use names to identify something, to distinguish it from other things. And then with inanimate objects, right, that's my car, you know, that's my coffee, right? We just call it something and it's generic and that's fine. But when we talk, when we speak about how we name individuals, right, If you meet a stranger or you read a story and someone's name is like, you know, George Washington, you just think, okay, George Washington, right? He's some dude. Until you learn the history of George Washington, you're like, okay, George Washington, he's the first president of the United States, right? And then as you think of it, right, instead of just being a moniker, a placeholder for the identity of something to be distinguished from something else that's similar... Instead, it starts to take on kind of a depth of meaning so that it's not so much an issue of what that is, but who that is. It begins to define our idea of character, of being, of value. Right. So if, if, I, you know, if I think of like, uh, um, I don't know, um, yesterday was Jackie Robinson Day. Right, in baseball. And if I think of the, the name Jackie Robinson, I have a lot of thoughts. Jackie right? he broke the color barrier. He was a phenomenal athlete. He's a UCLA grad. Ooh, did you know that? Just, just want to throw that in there, right? Um, just, he's a Dodger. There's some wonderful things about But do I know him? No, I know about him, right? I can appreciate him from a distance. If I say the word Kathy, that's my wife. And I know about her. I know the things that she stands for, the things that she is. Um, but it comes with affection, right? I care about her in a way that I don't care about Jackie Robinson. And if you say, hey, we're going to erase Jackie Robinson Day and everyone is, is proclaimed to stop thinking about him, I might say, oh, that's not nice, but all right. You know, like it doesn't really, doesn't really change much, right? But if someone says, hey, we got to stop thinking about Kathy Park and we're not going to, I say, ho, 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 hold on a second, pal, right? There is a, a moniker, a name, an identification, right, for human beings in particular that tell us something about what we are, about who we are. It defines us, it gives us character, it gives us purpose, it gives us value. We are so much more significant than simply, which one of you is this, right? If we go into a a, a hall of 200 people that we don't know, and we're looking for one person named David Lee, because there's so many David Lees, (laughs) right? That could be problematic. But let's say you're just crawling out a name that you don't know, you know? Gunther Park or something, right? And so you go up, and you literally say Gunther Park. And the significance is only that it identifies somebody in terms of who they are distinguished from someone else. But again... If I'm calling my my wife's name or even by, you know, if I'm saying honey, right, in a crowd of people, then I'm looking for a particular person that I have relationship with. This is what we mean by identity and what we mean by being identified in Christ Jesus. I hope I can unpack this for you well. We begin with Paul himself and his identification, that he is an undeserving apostle of Christ Jesus. That's the opening lines, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. The reason why I insert the adjective that he is undeserving is because that's what Paul would say of himself, right? He was the great opponent to the followers of Jesus Christ in the first century. In fact, Paul refers to himself as the foremost of sinners in 1 Timothy 1. And the reason why is he says because he was formerly a blasphemer. He called Christ not the Christ. He called Jesus not the Son of God, right? He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor and a violent aggressor. He stood and held the coats and approved of those that stoned Stephen to death. He was fine with murder because his followers of Christ deserved it. And so when he thinks of himself... Years later, even as apostle, he thinks of himself as the foremost of sinners. So it's not in himself or by his deserving at all that he is called an apostle of Jesus Christ. And yet here he is by the will of God, right? An emissary for Jesus Christ the Lord. The word apostle, apostolos, means an envoy, an ambassador, Someone, a messenger, someone that goes on behalf of his authority, of his king, or of his nation. And Paul's identifying himself as an ambassador of Christ. The key thing in that particular term is the idea that you are sent. It, it suggests, the, the term apostle itself suggests that you are authorized by another, not by yourself. Right? There's no such thing as, I am Nam, I'm an apostle of Nam Park of the kingdom of parks, right? It doesn't work. An apostle is sent by another, one in authority over him. It implies immediately what Paul would say explicitly throughout his different works, right? That he belongs to Christ, that he represents his king, the Lord Jesus, and he represents him to the Gentiles and to the Jews. It means that he lives he speaks, he acts in ways that are in accord with his master's will. He's here to do what Christ would have him to do, not to do whatever he wants to do. And it also suggests that his authority, his authority to do miracles, his authority to speak prophecy, his authority to write down inspired scripture through the power of the Holy Spirit, all of that had nothing to do with himself but was empowered and authorized by his master, Christ Jesus. He's just simply a steward, right? Of the authority that his Lord has granted to him. That's what it means that he's an apostle. By the way, you guys know Paul. Paulus is a Greek term that means little. Remember, he is Saul of Tarsus. That's his Hebrew given name. And uh I don't know, I mean, his parents seem to be like really solid, you know, Jewish parents who sent him not just to synagogue, but had him trained as a Pharisee, etc. But Saul? Really? Like the only Saul I know in the rest of the Old Testament, right, is the first king of Israel. Not the greatest person. I don't know if I'd name my kid Saul, right? Paulus is what he is called and perhaps what he has chosen to be called. Starting in Acts 13, it says Saul, who is also known or also referred to as Paul. The Greek, Paulus, simply means little. It implies humility and a sense of, you know, insignificance. He's small. That's why he chose that name. Paul, the little one, an emissary of Christ Jesus, and that by the will of God. By the will of God. Now, we, we will say a lot about God's will because that will come up uh, several times in the epistle. In fact, it comes up four times in the space of the next, you know, um, eight, eight, nine verses, between verses uh, um, one through 11, four times the will of God is, is mentioned because all of this. What Christ has done in terms of saving Paul, in terms of calling Paul, in terms of sending Paul out, all of this is by the will of our Heavenly Father. That's the point. And the emphasis of that idea of God's will is that it is God's purposeful will. And in particular, as we will see in this first context of chapter one, it is tied very closely with his will, his purposes in saving sinners. If you guys are in um, Ephesians 1, let, let's just scan down and see the different times that the will of God is mentioned. All right? Ephesians 1, starting in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And look at the next phrase. According to the purpose of his will. So he had planned, he had chosen, predestined, and adopted us in Christ according to the purpose of his will. Look at verses 7 through 9. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us The mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. You hear these themes over and over, that they are done in Christ. is about his salvation, mysterious and wondrous and impossible. And that he has done that according to his purpose, according to his will. Verses 11 and 12. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. You see my point that even as Paul opens the epistle by saying, I'm Paul, little, an apostle of Christ Jesus by his authority and by the will of God. I am an apostle of Christ Jesus, saved and sent by God's will. The same will that in time, right, immortal, past, that has been expressed in his planning to rescue us. Have have you given thought, and we'll give more thought to it, because that's, you know, those passages are coming up in the next couple of weeks. But have you given thought to the idea that that God knew everything about you, even before he allowed you or created you to exist? He knew about your, your weaknesses, right? Your strengths your capacities and abilities, and every sin of thought, intention, motive, and action that you commit for all of your life. And looking through the sea of humanity of all time, he decided to cast his love on some of us in a way that is absolutely undeserved. He he didn't look and go, okay, let me just put them on a bell curve. Let me find the ones that are you know, a little less bad, right? He just saw all the wickedness of every human life here. And he chose to call some of us. And it was the intention of his will to predestine some of us, to rescue some of us, because we deserve it, because we're good. No, no. But because his purpose was to demonstrate his grace and kindness in his son, Jesus Christ. It was God's saving purpose to extend his will to rescue us to rescue Saul of Tarsus a persecutor of Christians so that he might become Christ's emissary his apostle and in particular his apostle to the Gentiles whom he at one time hated right identified with Christ Jesus the first is this undeserving apostle of Christ Jesus secondly and look at the second part of verse verse um, 1 and this is the destination. This is who the letter is written to. It is the unlikely saints in Christ Jesus. It is written, the letter is written by the Apostle Paul to, second part of verse one, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He uses two terms to kind of emphasize their identity. One, they are saints. And secondly, they are faithful in Christ. All right. The, the saints part is a word hagias, it literally means they're holy ones. And it's borrowing the kind of uh, the, the same language that comes from our Hebrew Old Testament scriptures, where God's people are called holy ones, or we translate it saints. Now now, as we think of holy or saint, we should be reminded, as as you know, as many scholars will point out, that this doesn't indicate inherent goodness. Instead, it says that some were set apart, because that's, that's what holy, that term, Old Testament or New Testament, that is the main emphasis of that term. So when we say, dude, I just want to grow in holiness, what we mean by that is that we want to be separate, set apart. And we probably mean that we want to be more set apart in terms of moral issues, in terms of spiritual issues, in terms of right and wrong issues, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But what makes God holy is not simply that he doesn't sin. is that he is different from us. He is different from his creatures. He is different from those that are around him. And so in the Old Testament, when God calls his people to be holy because God is holy, he's not saying morally perfect because I'm morally perfect. His emphasis is on you need to be different from the sinful world around you because I am so different. From the entirety of this sinful universe. It's about being set apart. And that's a term that, that Paul finds uh, to be the best term to describe these Christians who are in Ephesus, right? They are holy ones, set apart people, not because of great piety or because of something that they are doing, but because of what Christ has accomplished for them, not in ourselves. But in Christ, and we go back to that same right uh, ephesians two eight and then nine for by grace you have been saved through faith, this is not of your own doing, it's not yourself it's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. It is a life that is different, set apart, distinguishable because yes, it is morally pure it is it is different, it chooses a different path and purpose for existence. And it's all because of what Christ has accomplished in us. These are the holy ones. And how improbable is that? Of all the people that he is talking to, he's talking to Gentiles here in Ephesus. Gentile Christians. Gentile holy ones. In the Old Testament, you would never refer, right, to any Gentile as a holy one, as a saint. That's not possible. In fact, Gentiles, right, in the time of the Gospels, are referred to as unclean. Right? And if you did certain kind of Gentile work, like you dealt with dead animals or dead things, etc., like if you're a tanner, leather worker, etc., you are perpetually unclean. Like, you can never get the stain of your uncleanness off of you. That's the Gentiles. They were the dogs. They were the unclean things. And how improbable is it that these unlikely individuals have been called into Christ for salvation and are now declared to be holy ones? So the key of the first half of this letter is to establish that theologically, the theology of our position in Christ. How did Gentiles, I assume most of us in this room are Gentiles, right? How did the unclean ones become a holy people of God? That's the theology of chapter one, two, and three. But then the second part the second half of the letter is to give us help in how to live in a manner that's worthy of this salvation and this calling. In other words, how can we live faithfully in Christ Jesus as holy ones? Right? And that's, that's literally the two descriptions that Paul uses um, of these individuals, these Christians. He says to the saints, the holy ones in Ephesus. And, right, and the second part is uh, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So it's almost like he is emphasizing where his letter is going to go. You are holy ones, and this is how that happened, right? You are faithful ones, and this is what faithfulness looks like. This is where he's going with the entire book. That's what it means to live in a manner worthy of this gospel call, right? Privilege in Christ, our gospel wealth, chapters 1 through 3. Responsibility in, our, in Christ, right? Our gospel walk, that's chapters 4 through 6. The key, though, even as we look at the second part of verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful, the key is that phrase, in Christ Jesus. The idea of being in Christ, and a couple of times with Christ or through Christ, but predominantly in Christ, in the book of Ephesus happens around 35 times. That is inordinately a large amount of times that this concept of being together, united, identified with Christ is mentioned in just six short chapters. i can give you an example of this if you turn to Ephesians 2, verses 5 through 10. For when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. You see that, with Christ? By grace you have been saved. created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, so here we are raised to newness of life, in verse 5, in Christ. We are seated and exalted in heaven, in Christ, in verse 6, that that the Father's reputation of immeasurable riches towards us in kindness has been established in Christ, in verse 7, our purpose for doing good works, what we're created to do, is only in Christ Jesus. Verse ten, Ephesians is not the book that you go to to figure out how to fix yourself, how to prove yourself a genuine one, how to sanctify yourself by your own power. That's not the book that you go to. This is a book that is established in Christ as our Savior and our Lord, and it establishes a salvation from start, our justification to end our glorification, and all the struggling in between our sanctification are initiated and empowered by union with Christ, by identity with Christ. We are raised to a newness of life in Christ, seated in the heavenly places in Christ. And this doesn't just simply mean that we kind of follow a similar path as this. We'll get to this when we get to this. But Paul in Ephesians is saying that we are actually seated in Christ at the right hand of the Father right now. That we are exalted, not in some weird metaphorical way, because then Jesus is probably sitting at the right hand of the Father in a weird metaphorical way. But in our identity with him, we are represented as if we are exalted beside him. See, there's wealth and power, and distinctiveness that is emphasized all in our identity with Christ. And it is rich, rich and overflowing, lavishly given to us in the book of Ephesians. Let me put it in practical terms. How do I overcome this sin? Right? The sin that we've been struggling with. How can I learn to be more kind, more gracious when I'm so angry? Right? Right? How do I grow in these particular areas of sanctification and heavenly wisdom and effectiveness for gospel uh, purposes? How can I? How can I? And the answer is you can't. In yourself, you cannot. It is only in Christ that you are able to accomplish a walk that is worthy of your gospel calling. That's the point. And just as a side note, you know, I'll say it quickly because I've said it in the past. Um, in some other message, maybe thousands of years ago. I don't remember. But in Ephesians 5 and 6, we have something that we call the household codes. That's not something that Christians have called that. It is something that skeptics of the New Testament have identified as being a code of conduct or ethics for households. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because there's a code of conduct for husbands and wives, code of conduct for parents and children, code of conduct for masters and servants that are mentioned, household codes. These were pointed out, though, by skeptics, the historical skeptics of the New Testament. Because what they notice is, hey, dude, these household codes that you guys have in the New Testament, they're very similar to the ones that the Romans held to as well. You could find a lot of the same kind of stuff. Their wives should, should you know, submit to their husbands. Romans thought that was true, right? Their children should obey their parents. Roman Roman people thought that that was... So these are ethics that's found in Roman culture and society. And so they thought, see, you guys are just borrowing that. And you guys are pretending that that is distinctly Christian. But see, where they are mistaken is that these are distinctly Christian. i just give you a sampling. Right? In Ephesians 5.22, when it says, Wives are to submit to their husbands... It doesn't, it doesn't hard stop there. It says, as to the Lord. When verse 25 says, husbands, love your wives, it doesn't stop there. It says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Six one. children, obey your parents in the Lord. Fathers, verse 4 of chapter 6, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction necessary for their success. Now, that's false. You know that's false, right? They are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The point is that Christ is the beginning, the end, and all the parts in between for our Christian journey. He is everything for our spiritual sanctification. Or he is steadily replaced by our own version of self-righteousness. And we become Pharisees right before our eyes. What makes these household codes different from those household codes? All Unto and for and empowered by our identity in Christ. Identity in Christ connects us to the power, life, maturity, and wisdom that is so distinctly Christian and transformed. Every time we define our Christianity in terms of ourselves, our own experiences, our own thoughts, our individual blessings, we begin to drift from the one truth that is meant to anchor us and our souls. And that truth is that we are Christians because we are in Christ. That truth should hold us, it should change us, and it should define everything about us. That's what we're going to get from Ephesians. Let me just say one one last kind of thing because it's in my outline. Blessed in Christ Jesus, verses two and three. It'll go fairly quickly because we're going to cover verse three anyway, right, when we come up to it next week. Blessed in Christ Jesus. The greeting goes this way in verse two Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a greeting, a gospel greeting of grace and peace. And let me just say this, right? It becomes kind of normal in the New Testament, especially in the letters, that there's a greeting of grace and peace. We might use that, you know? There are Christian ministries that speak of grace and peace. And I think that's great. I think that's, that's excellent. But just so you know, the Greek, the common Greek greeting was a term that means rejoice, right? But it sounds similar to our word for grace. Kareem, you know, rejoice. That was how they would say hi, right? Um, The Hebrews, though, when they would say hi, they would say shalom, peace. So if you took a Greek greeting and a Hebrew greeting, it would sound like rejoice and peace. But by replacing karen with karis, grace, we have defined this in a much more gospel-centric idea. So that it is grace and peace. By grace, I mean that's a gospel trigger word, right? As soon as we hear that as Christians, we should be thinking of so many things. right? In fact, no, no one but Christians uses the term "grace like we do. People use it like to talk about like, you know, graciousness of movement or kind of, kindness towards others, etc. And there's an element of truth to what that is, but grace is about, is about gift. And, and goodness and undeserving. It is about the accomplishment of something that no human effort or striving could ever accomplish. It's about salvation that is one entirely outside of ourselves. And so grace is a gospel trigger word for us. So that when we think about our salvation, we should always be thinking about how great and merciful and gracious is our God. Ephesians 2.4 But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we're dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. That's what grace means to us. Peace, again, is borrowed from the Hebrew shalom. In our definition of peace is usually conceptualized as a ceasefire or a truce. But shalom speaks of a peacefulness a tranquil wholeness, a completeness. It's not just the ceasing of hostilities. There is a ceasing of hostilities, but there's so much more. It's not just the truce between enemies, but the kind of peace that reorients relationships so that we have peace with God and with our enemies, so that we have a new relationship, not just that God stops being angry with me and I stop being angry with him. I stop hating Gentiles or Jews, whichever way that goes. But then now I'm reoriented with a peace that surpasses understanding, that makes us whole and gives us relationship. Grace and peace, gospel greetings, right? Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? I mean, we don't even have to say that it is God and um, Christ that is the author of these things. But let me just say this part of it. From the outset, this letter is all about God's work in and through Christ. It is about, even in this greeting, it's a reminder of the exclusive work of God on our behalf through his son. It's not just an expression of, of, hey, I wish you grace and peace in your life. But he's saying that you have grace and peace in your life. And I'm asking for more because that's what God does. He grants to us, right, as as our Heavenly Father. And don't miss the possessive pronoun. He is not just God, the Father, distant and, and uninterested. He is our Heavenly Father, our Father, God, our Father. And it's Jesus, our Lord, right? The Lord Jesus Christ, and it is from both of them, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that every spiritual blessing flows. I'm just going to read you um, and explain just a short part of verse 3 because we'll cover it again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with Christ in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is the first verse in, um, I think it's about 14 verses, right? Oh, no, no, it's less than that. But verses 3, I think through 14, right? That entire section is right? a singular prayer. Oh, let me say it this way. It's a singular sentence. Remember how like, he used to write sentences in English and get busted because this is a run-on. Like There's like eight sentences. There is like ten sentences in this one sentence. But it's this run-on. And it's this beautiful and expressive poetic run-on that begins with blessing. And I think it tells us something about where he wants us to go. He says the word blessing, right, or blessed three different ways. Paul says, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is an exaltation of who God is. Why? Because he has blessed us in Christ. Is that in Christ again? He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So there is God be blessed. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everything, not just most things. But everything that is good and excellent and spiritual and, and beneficial for our sanctification, God has granted to us in Christ Jesus. See, we look forward to our study in the book of Ephesians because I think, I think it highlights the glory of God and the work of Christ. It will speak of our position in Christ first, all right? The theology that builds our doxology, that builds our worship. And then it will speak of our practice, of what it means to live for him and to live in him. And that practice, right, is an act of praise. So that both theology and practice really are meant to be one singular doxological living to his glory and for his praise and purposes. This is the book of Ephesians. It is what we look forward to in the coming months. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. That none of us have the capacity, Lord, to save ourselves or to be worthy of our salvation, and yet you have chosen to rescue us. Oh, would you be gracious to those that keep hearing this, perhaps week in and week out, and have not responded to its truthfulness? Would you be kind to their souls and draw them to yourself as only you can? Would you be gracious to us who have claimed the name of Jesus Christ and have found eternal life, Lord, help us not to shrink back into all the pettiness of this world, to be tempted to folly and to sinfulness and to smallness when we have the wealth of Christ to live for. Lord, help us to offer ourselves um, as an act of worship that honors the Savior that is so immense and is so gracious and is so lavish in his kindness towards us that we might bring you all the glory and seek to honor you with whatever comes in this life. We pray these things in Jesus' name.